0: Welcome to Footnotes, a podcast of Study the Great Books. I'm Jacob Ali, your host. And in this uh, brand new uh, podcast, what we're going to be doing is just sharing some thoughts. So reading a section of a great book, kind of sharing some off-the-cuff uh, reflections of what I've seen there or things I've observed. Uh, in some cases, I've taught these books uh, numerous times. Uh, and some of the books I may cover maybe be uh, even newer to me. And so what I don't claim is to be the absolute end-all to be-all expert on everything that I'm going to talk about. But what I do want to do is increase your appetite uh, for reading great books and to get you interested. Uh, And so what I just want to do is just share with you things that I am seeing as I'm reading uh, to, to that end. So yeah. So Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is the first book that I'm going to be talking about. And I'm just going to offer up a few thoughts. So Sir Gawain and the Green Knight... Uh, was written in the late 1300s, maybe close to 1400 AD. So it is a a later medieval work. Uh, It was written in English, but it was written in Middle English, uh, which uh, if you've ever looked at Middle English, which would be the same thing that Chaucer originally wrote his Canterbury Tales in, you would find that you could recognize it to some degree. You'd be able to make your way through it. And yet there would be some serious difficulties at other points as well. You would find words that are completely unknown to you, uh, that you know really does require some translation. And so, this uh, edition of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which I am using, is translated by none other than the Lord of the Rings author himself, J. R. R. Tolkien. Uh, really enjoy this edition, but there are other good editions as well. One thing you'd want to know about Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is that it is an alliterative poem. Uh, which is to say that it is broken up by stanzas, and that the the form of the poetry uses alliteration, meaning that it has a repetition of consonant sounds as kind of the, the driving force of the poem. Although each stanza does end in a kind of a rhyme scheme, an A-B-A-B-A rhyme scheme every single time, so that you always know when you're ending one stanza and getting ready for the next because of that rhyme scheme kicking in. Uh, But the the main part of the stanza is not focused on rhyme, but getting in that alliterative repetition of consonant sound. Uh, And so I'm going to go ahead and read for you just the first stanza here and then share a few thoughts with you. Here we go. Stanza one. When the siege and the assault had ceased at Troy, and the fortress fell in flame to firebrands and ashes, the traitor who the contravents of treason there fashioned was tried for his treachery, the most true upon earth it was Aeneas, the noble and his renowned kindred, who then laid under them lands and lords, became of well-nigh all wealth in the western isles. When royal Romulus to Rome his road had taken in great pomp and pride, he peopled it first. And named it with his own name that yet it now bears. Tyrius went to Tuscany and towns founded. Langebeard in Lombardy uplifted halls. And far over the French flood Felix Brutus on many a broad bank and bribe Britain established, full fair, where strange things, strife and sadness at wiles in the land did fare. And each other grief and gladness oft fast have followed there. So that is the beginning of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And there's just a lot of fun things to see here. But one of the things I want to connect you to uh, is that this book very intentionally wants to connect itself to the great tradition. Uh, So it starts off by, by speaking about the fall of Troy, the siege of Troy. And, of course, the siege is where a city is completely surrounded and its supply lines are cut off. And, of course, Homer's Iliad tells us uh, a small snippet of the great story of this 10-year war at Troy that was fought uh, when Paris stole Helen uh, from his, his host, who he had been graciously invited in as a guest, uh, and he took the wife of Menelaus. And so the Trojans, uh, along with many other Greeks, came Um, I'm sorry, the Trojans were the ones obviously at Troy, but the the Greeks came and attacked Troy. Um, It was the Spartans. There we go. It was the Spartans who, along with many other Greeks, came to Troy to attack the Trojans in an attempt to retrieve retrieve Helen. So the old saying is that the Trojan War, that uh, Helen's face, her beautiful face, was that which launched a thousand ships, right? So the Sir Gawain poet uh, starts off by referring to the siege of Troy. Um, And so, again, it connects you to thinkers like uh, Homer, who wrote these great works of both uh, the Iliad and then later the Odyssey. And then he also mentions Aeneas. And Aeneas was a Trojan, and he was one of the survivors of the fall of Troy. And he led his people out, according to various sources, uh, but especially Uh, Virgil's Aeneid. Uh, Virgil tells us that Aeneas led uh, a people that survived the Troy uh, to the lands of what would eventually be known as Italy. And the people that he founded there would kind of be the precursors to the Romans. And so Virgil uses that opportunity to kind of give a backstory for Rome Um, And and basically, everybody wants to connect themselves, right, to this great city, this great civilization known as Troy, which I always kind of find interesting because, you know, it's Troy that fell, right? And Troy lost the war in the end. And yet uh, it it stands out in the minds of people as one one of the greatest cities of all time. And so there was many who wanted to be connected to it and have a piece of it and claim it for their own heritage, Various rulers and kings and uh, emperors uh, in, in years hence after the fall of Troy would try to find that site once again and reestablish their own empire upon that site, things like that. Um, and of course, he mentions Romulus and Romulus is the, the mythical uh, founder, first king of Rome. He and his brother Remus, um, you know, founded Rome before they had a falling out and a conflict in which Remus was killed. And of course, Romulus uh, disappears under suspicious circumstances as well. So you could read uh, Plutarch's Life of Romulus and find out more about that. Uh, but so you just have all these great connections here in the, in the first stanza of Sir Goyne and the Green Knight um, mentions uh, Tyrius who went to Tuscany, and Langebeard, who went to Lombardy. And I'll just go ahead and admit my, my own personal ignorance. I don't know much about those two men that are being referenced there. So this is something I'd like to look into more uh, to understand if they have any connection directly back to Troy or if, if only the point maybe of the poet here is to just mention uh, the names of great men who founded uh, great cities and great uh, civilizations. Maybe that's just his point because the last one he mentions is Felix Brutus, but Felix Brutus, uh, according to the history of the Kings of Britain, written by Geoffrey of Monmouth, Felix Brutus does also uh, have his story go back to Troy. So after Troy fell, uh, many of the Trojans were that who were not killed were captured and put into slavery, but some got away and, and were living free elsewhere. And Felix Brutus, according to History of the Kings of Britain, uh, was one of those who was living free Uh, but ill-fated as he was, uh, he kills his father in a hunting accident and therefore he is driven from his people. He has to kind of flee from his people because of his accidental killing of his father, who was the king. And so what he decides to do is he goes back to the, uh, the enslaved, uh, Trojans uh, who are still under the Greek tyranny, so to speak. And he goes to them and he leads a rebellion and he kind of leads those captives free And then there's this prophecy that they will find this kind of shining isle where they will go and found a new Troy, a greater Troy. And that island ends up being Great Britain. Um, And so Felix Brutus then becomes the first king of the Britons. So you have all these wonderful connections just right here in the first stanza of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And of course, you just have this kind of beautifully written poetic style uh, it's so fun to read and I encourage you to pick up a copy of the book and to read it and to read it out loud I, I'm telling you you will be missing out if you just read this inside your head you need to read this out loud. One last little note before I stop for this uh, first episode on reading out loud by the way uh, in Augustine's Confessions uh, he talks about how he went into the church at one time and this was before he himself had, converted to Christianity. Uh, but the minister whom he was converted under underneath was Saint Ambrose. And it's an interesting little note that he, uh, he made note of that Ambrose had this strange habit of reading silently. Uh, and you say, why might that be strange? Well, it turns out that throughout ancient history, most people read everything aloud. In fact, Uh, Much of the literature was constructed to be easily memorized and recited out loud. And so to find somebody who would be reading quietly inside their head was actually strange enough for um, for Augustine to actually note the fact that his minister was doing something really weird that day. So anyway, there you go. So that's the, the first uh, episode of the Footnotes Podcast. I hope you enjoy it. More to come. Uh, little thoughts about great books. We'll see you later.